Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Today we have someone on the show that I am really looking forward to talking to. Libby Gill is coming to us today out of Los Angeles. She is the CEO of a leadership and consulting and coaching firm, the Libby Gill and Company Group. And she is someone that is just making life better everywhere she goes. Award-winning author, former Dallas Morning News columnist, head of communications for the television divisions of Sony, Universal, and Turner Broadcasting. She also serves as the vice chair of the board of directors at the D.D. Hirsch Mental Health Services, which I'm hoping I got even close to right. And if not, she can help me with that. But it is a great honor to have Libby Gill with us today. And I guarantee you this is going to be a conversation worth listening to. Libby, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So you are coming to us today out of Los Angeles and Los Angeles and and California have uh, really been challenged by COVID. You just have so many people there. How are things? It's a little scary out there. And and I feel quite fortunate because I'm in a part of the city where we've got room and space and things are comfortable, but there are a lot of people who are suffering. And it's really difficult for people who need to ride the bus and work the front lines. And my heart goes out to them. Well, thank you for taking the time to spend with us today. This show is really about having an opportunity for people to listen in on a conversation about people's lives. And so when I look at your resume, you've been able to be a part of some really amazing things. You've been able to create things that didn't exist. You've been able to improve things that were already in play. Looking at your life and thinking about the people who've been a part of your life, tell me about someone who helped make an impact on you as a leader. That is such a tough question. I have been asked this before, and sometimes I think it's the opposite. It's it's the people I didn't have access to. I felt like when I was starting out in my career in corporate entertainment, which is a business, of course, just like anything else, even though it deals with films and television, there weren't a lot of role models. I, I certainly was not the first wave of women through the door, but I was in that sort of second group. And I had a real hard time, and I think part of it was my own sort of fear of revealing what I didn't know and how new and green I was, that I didn't reach out for them. But I think by observation, by watching people in action and being part of those leadership teams, that I saw what good mentors and good leadership looked like. And I think I learned as much by observation as by direct mentoring. I know that the sample size of people I get to talk to is skewed by the number that are already leaders, but your answer mirrors what I've heard from some of the most incredible leaders. And and they'll say that. They'll say, "I, I did not have what I wished I had access to. So I became more of an observer. I've heard that, which I find just fascinating. And then secondly, I've run into a lot of leaders who said what I had was so bad that I thought, well, what's the exact opposite of this? And maybe I can do it that way. I'll agree so, with that too. Yeah. So when you, when you think about that and you started to observe and, and you saw that, that's a, somewhat of an unusual thing to, to be able to look around and see the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Were you always that way? Were you always the kind of person that would find your own way? 
I got rocked around a lot in childhood and my adolescence, a, a very unhappy family with a lot of tragedies related to mm -hmm. alcoholism and mental illness and suicide in my family and learned at a pretty young age to take care of myself and keep my head down and work really hard. And that worked in the early part of my career. Not so much later on when I wanted to be a little bit more out front. And one thing when someone was, I had some of those leaders, entertainment, it's really easy to find people with the big egos and the eccentricities and all of that. They were everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be one of those. And I had a woman who ostensibly could have been a role model for me say to me early on, you're too nice for the business. And of course, in Hollywood, the business, you know, it's the only business there is, is entertainment. And certainly that was not a compliment. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to do business that way. When I'm at your level, I'm going to be a human being. And I made that decision very early on. I wasn't going to belittle people or put people down or fight for every nickel. I wanted people to be the best of themselves. And I do think all of that made me a better leader and made me want to share with other people. Thank you for sharing that. It's amazing to me how common that unbelievably bad advice is. Yeah. And it's everywhere. And when you care about people and you think, well, maybe maybe I do need to be something different and it doesn't lead to a better outcome, but you don't know the difference. So if you could go back at the beginning of your career, what is one thing that you wish you had known when you started? I wish I'd known that I could stand up and use my voice more. I wish that I had known that I didn't have to know it all. I remember feeling a little threatened by, you know, all these people that I, and I've got a, just a good old state college education. And I thought there were all these brilliant people everywhere and I'm probably not one of them. And yet I moved from being an assistant in a large company to being a department head and a vice president in five years through three major restructures. And it didn't even occur to me that that was a big move. In hindsight, was like, what people would say, I'd mention that and somebody would say, you, you did what? How'd you do that? I went from, from a little company to being owned by uh, this production television company founded by Norman Lear, who was one of the greats in the world of television. And then that got absorbed by Columbia Pictures and then bought by Coca-Cola and then bought by Sony. And I started out, I was a kid in the PR department. And in five years, I was the head of the communications, advertising and promotion for the worldwide television group. And I didn't know that I could do those things. And I didn't know that that was a big deal. If I had met you at that time, here you are starting off, you're in PR, you're trying to figure out which way's up. And I said to you, let me tell you what's going to happen in your career. You're going to see these types of things happen. And then not only are you going to be successful in that executive type of role, then you're going to be a person who is... Uh, very in demand as a speaker at incredible events that you're going to be directly engaged in helping leaders think through where they are and where they want to be. If I had painted the picture, was that, would I be in alignment with what you thought or, or would you have thought I landed from another planet? Oh, another planet for sure. I, I, it would never have occurred to me. I always knew I was smart. I knew that I worked hard but I could not have foreseen something at that level for myself. And certainly no one ever said, hey, you know, you're going to be good at this. Or I'd never heard that either in my family life or in my professional life. It was only in hindsight that I thought, 
Yeah, I, I did accomplish a few things. It's surprising often for leaders to look back because they are just trying to show up and do the best they can. And then they look back and they realize, oh, wow, we really did do something pretty incredible. But one of the things I've noticed about leaders is that I just don't know any who haven't had challenging times in their lives or, or moments where it just did not work. When someone just uh, leaves the impression that it just all happened, I don't believe them. <laughs> and then when you get into it deeper, there's always a backstory. And I don't mean something necessarily scandalous, really. I just mean that it doesn't always work. So looking at your life, if you were speaking to other people who are trying to figure out their path as leaders that are struggling right now, what would you say to them about failures that you experienced and how you learned from those failures? Well, that's kind of an easy one because if I learn something, it is not a failure by my mm. own definition. Wow. That is where I set the bar. If I don't learn something, I generally make the mistake again. And then I learn it. But I'm very clear on that. If I've learned something, it's okay. Didn't work out well. But the one thing I think in, in the questions you're asking is, there was another course I wanted for my career. And I think I went, I went along the path that, that appeared for me as opposed to saying, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do everything I can in my power. So one thing I do with my kids is encourage them to figure out what you want and let that happen. Don't take the other road. If that's really what you want, careers along. It takes a long time to get there wherever there is. When did you realize that you had a growth mindset and that you were willing to overcome obstacles the best that you could? Oh, I learned that at a very young age. I was that kid in high school and I went to six different high schools, including two in my senior year of high school. I had to have a growth mindset. I had no other choice, but I was the kid that carried around the, whatever we called it back then, the, the day calendar, the file effects. When I was a junior in high school, you know, I was scheduling things and figuring things out. I was always just looking to learn. You know, I would read my way through an entire author or entire series of books or go to lectures that kids didn't go to, you know, any, anywhere I had a chance to learn something new. So I was well aware of that. Again, I, I so appreciate you sharing these things because there are people out there listening that came from families that were struggling, that had a lot of pain and, and people wonder, well, how am I going to be able to be an effective leader when I've got all these challenges? And I look at what you've done and to change the course of your family's history by being willing to be uncomfortable in a different way has opened up an incredible door. You've done just amazing things. When you think about your life and you think about some of the characteristics that you think leaders need to be developing, what would you say are some of the characteristics that you think leaders should possess? Well, I think courage is one of the most important things. Um, you have to be brave to take risks. You have to be brave to look at yourself. You have to be brave to have all those difficult conversations with other people that make you so uncomfortable and yet you know you have to make them. And then the flip side, I think, is, is, is curiosity. If you don't stay curious and you don't get other people curious about lots of opportunities and different ways of thinking about things, I think you're, you're sort of lost in terms of having that sense of purpose. And more than ever before, I think a deep sense of integrity and character down to every cell of your being is more critical now than ever with all the turmoil we've seen on so many different fronts. I think leaders need to set the bar for integrity in a very real and personal way. 
You have just released a book recently that came from the Door Institute at Rice, and I am so impressed with what is happening there. Uh, just the the depth, the academic rigor, the sincerity of the people. I mean, it's just an incredible program. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing about the book? Some of that, please. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm so excited about this book. And I was honored to be brought into the project because I'm not a Door Institute employee, but that the Door Institute at Rice was founded by John and Ann Door, who were both Rice grads, both engineers, who felt that they needed to do something to help steer young people and students at Rice specifically into, into leadership roles in whatever way that meant for them, to develop them as human beings who were ready to lead. And they put $50 million of their own money into this institute and hired Tom Kolditz, former Brigadier General, who came in as essentially as a startup and built this amazing team. And along with Tom and Dr. Ryan Brown, who is a, a social scientist and the head of measurement there, they built with their team this incredible group that is dedicated to coaching and developing leaders. And the numbers and the metrics are so terrific. And I came in in about year number three, we're at five years now, I think, in terms of the Institute. And it was time they saw what was happening and how unlike it was to anything in academia. And we did the research to see if anybody else did anything like this. And no, they weren't. What was doing what other universities have done, admirable, but on a much smaller scale, more limited to certain people. And they built this program open to every undergrad and graduate student at Rice University. And they brought me in when it was time to, we need to codify this. We need to share this with others, both to just open up all these resources, but also as a call to action and a challenge to their academic colleagues out there to say, you may not have the endowment that we have, you may not have the resources, but here are all the ways you can do what we did. Now go do it. And, um, so, and yeah. So tell me about the, uh, the book, excuse me for uh, jumping in too soon there. I, I do get excited about all this. Tell us about the book and what that means for you. Oh, and so the book is really about what brought about, just as I described, why do we need an institute like this? What does it do and how does it function? And there are core programs within the, the Door Institute for coaching and for workshops. And, and of course, they can, the people in the trenches can explain those much better than I, but they are all about leadership development as a separate enterprise than a classroom experience. This is about you come in and we're gonna tailor a program just to you. And then there are these additional workshops that you can take. There are all these different programs to continue to grow your leadership development wherever you start as a freshman throughout your graduate school, or you come in as a senior, we're gonna give you this experience. And people, they end up with this, and I interviewed tons of students there. They have a, a much higher level of self-awareness. They understand what leadership means, and they understand that they, leadership is a choice, that it is a leader identity. They have self-selected. They didn't come in as leaders. They weren't chosen because they were already leaders. They signed up and said, I want to be a better leader, and they left as better leaders. And now that there's some data with people that are have graduated and gone on, there's some good data that shows that, in fact, they took those leadership skills and competencies with them into the workplace. 
Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. It's my understanding that this is a completely voluntary program for the undergrad students. And these are students who are very high achievers, who are attending a school that is renowned for being very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. And now 40% of the undergrad students are participating in coaching because of the value that it brings to their lives. Absolutely. The word has spread. Um, Among the students and the door participants themselves are really seeing what a great program it is, how much it impacts their day-to-day life as students. They get much better control of their emotions and managing relationships and structuring time. You know, some are sort of the emotional social components and some are the, the rigors of a very, as you said, a high level challenging school. And so it's such a, a rewarding experience for, for me particularly to, to have heard from those students about how it's changed their lives. Well, congratulations on the book and congratulations on really making history because what you're outlining is something that is meant to be something that other places can use. And and I love that. So many centers and institutes really do mean well and they'll say we want to be the bridge between academia and business or academia and industry, industry and things like that. And they really do. They really want to do that. But the Door Institute is actually doing that. And I would just recommend the book and recommend the the people in place. I've known Dr. Brown for a number of years before he went to Rice. And he has always been one of those people that you can just trust. He cares deeply. He is uh, very serious about his craft. And he's also the kind of person you can talk to. And that's a rare combination of things, you know. Yes, he can make measurement and statistics make sense, even to me. So I appreciate that. It's pretty remarkable seeing what they have done. And now you can also, through the program, become a professional coach. So there are young adults. I mean, these are kids in their early 20s who can become coaches themselves. I mean, imagine that. If I'd had that when I was a student, I would have been, I mean, that would have been such a benefit. So speaking of coaching, People know that Libby Gill is one of the great executive coaches, and that may not have been something that you thought would be a part of your resume someday, but you're recognized for what you bring to the table. What is it that you love about coaching? It it was actually what I loved about the corporate world. It was seeing people develop and grow. And when I was in my corporate days, the kind of work I did was was labor intensive and time intensive, and I always had one of the biggest youngest, greenest staffs at whatever studio I was working in. And it was an absolute joy to help people grow to a position of leadership, to turn them into senior level leaders in the course of of working together. And when I decided it's time to move on, that was exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't know how it would come about. And that's what I do today. I work with many senior leaders, but now also with some emerging leaders on and all senior leaders learning how to grow their leadership, how to grow that bench strength and that leadership development internally. And, and that's a really great opportunity to help leaders teach others to lead. So through these discussions that you have with really a pretty broad spectrum now of leaders interviewing the students from Rice after they've gone through their program or these emerging leaders who are dealing with that identity shift that comes from going from being the doer to the orchestrator of the doing, which is always a challenging time. And then you've got these other things that are happening. If you were looking at just leadership overall and and you're thinking about the challenges that are facing leaders today, 
What would be one or two things that you would say that are at at that core, biggest challenges that leaders are facing today, if you had to identify it? One of the biggest challenges I think is brought about by COVID in these times is the uncertainty. And it's a depth and this sort of longevity of uncertainty that most of us have never been exposed to before. So it's very difficult. Although we've always had those kinds of challenges and changes within organizations. So it's nothing new. And and part of what I do as a speaker is remind people, you've gone through business challenges and personal challenges before. You've got to find that inner strength, the kind of wherewithal to uh, reframe this in some way so that you can navigate through it. The biggest challenge I see that leaders are facing today, and, and this is nothing new, is uncertainty. With all of the complications of the COVID world that we're living in, it, it's really heightened um, our, our vulnerability, burnout for so many people, and just our ability to navigate change. That and the other part for me, and this is sort of the core of a lot of the work that I do, is the communication. It's been difficult for people to really figure out how to communicate, and I believe it should be over-communicate in a virtual world. But we're getting the hang of that. And one of the upsides of this whole experience, I think, is people are beginning to see that empathy has a place in leadership. And I think that is so critical. It was critical before but I'm not sure everybody saw it. And now they understand how important it is to be an empathetic leader. I appreciate the insights on that. It was interesting watching during the the pandemic and during just the layers of challenges that came at that time, because there was an awareness that was growing that you can't manage your way out of a crisis. You really do have to lead your way out of a crisis. And a lot of people who had been in leadership roles who were really relying more on management skills had to strengthen those leadership skills. They had to grow into it. And, and to your point, I think that people came out of the pandemic with a deeper appreciation for humans, yeah, that I we agree. really were in this together. And I, I appreciate your insight on that. That's uh, really incredible. Well, you're, you're looking at people in their living rooms. I have a client who likes to do our coaching calls from his walk-in closet because it's the quietest place in his house. I mean, we're seeing the constraints people have, Mm. you know, kids and dogs and all these things that are happening. And those are things people have always had to juggle, but now we're seeing them firsthand. No, I, I, I so appreciate your insight on that. So if you were having a conversation with someone who's listening in right now, who is at the beginning of their leadership journey, and interestingly enough, that could really be, it's less, it's less age-related than you might think because the leadership journey can begin at any point in many ways. But if you were giving advice to someone going into that role of leader really for the first time, what would you want them to know? What advice would you give them? I would tell them to go deep inside, figure out what they want, and then trust their gut. Hmm. Try to filter out some of the other things that people are telling you you need to be or you should be or you should do and really listen. And I know that probably sounds like a cliche, but it's so difficult to filter out the noise and get in touch with what you think is the best and highest use of your own talent. Mm. You know, that imposter syndrome that so many people wrestle with is such a well-worded concept, the imposter syndrome, because every leader feels that at some level. And to dig deep, because if you listen to what she said, she didn't just say, trust yourself. She said, dig deep and trust the hat. 
And, and that to me is a different kind of uh, advice and wisdom. So one of the questions that comes up a lot is what are some of the resources that you've found helpful in your leadership journey? And it's interesting because there are the ones sometimes that we're supposed to think, there are things we're supposed to say, mm-hmm. and then there are things that they actually work. On your list of what has actually been helpful, what would you say are some of the resources that you would recommend to people trying to become better leaders or more insightful leaders? Well, I've got a, a bookshelf behind me of things that I count among that. In fact, I keep a leadership book list for my clients. But one that really got me in, and I can't ever shake it, is a book called Change or Die. A journalist wrote this book based on people that are given, truly given diagnoses of if you don't change your, your health habits, you're going to die in two years. And with those sorts of diagnoses, less than 10 people change their habits. And these are personal habits like drinking or smoking or whatever, things that we have within our control. And it's really mind boggling when you think, really, even if you're going to die, 10% or less of you are going to take those words of advice and do something. And that to me is just an earth shaking concept. Well, You've experienced this. You've experienced it in your own life of seeing the power of habit, the power of addiction, the power of a limited perspective. I was researching some of this where it was talking, we were talking about medical doctors who have to give those negative diagnoses. And they were talking about if they had someone and they told them you're going to lose 30 pounds, you're going to have a heart attack. That engaged the negative emotional attractor part of the brain versus having them talk about what they would, you know, the ideal version of themselves. And that would connect with that positive emotional attractor. And then you were helping someone get there. When yes. I look at your life, I look at someone who chose the positive emotional attractor, that chose to have a vision that perhaps no one else had around you. Well, it's, it's so important to have this sort of, oh, it's funny, I just got off a coaching call about this, is having that visceral gut reaction to this is my vision. And it may not be easy, but it is attainable. And I'm going to just keep that front of mind all the time. And when I'm tired or stressed or whatever, that's going to get me through. That's going to get me excited about it. I talk a lot about hope theory, which Mm. comes out of, it's the science of hopefulness out of medicine and positive psychology. And a a lovely book about that is called The Anatomy of Hope by Dr. Jerome Groupman, where he talks about the fundamental component of hope is belief that change is possible. Mm. And if you don't believe that change is possible and that you have agency to make those changes, forget it. You know, it's game over. Or you live in your whatever kind of, you know, smaller version of your life. But that was just never, never for me. That just never sat right. Libby, I'm so grateful for your time today. And it means just more than you know. And for those who are listening in, check out Libby Gill. You can Google her name and find great video clips and different resources. She's an author who has some incredible work out there. And I say this to you, technically we're competitors and I'm telling you, go check out Libby Gill. Listen to her work, hire her. You can have her be a coach if she has openings anywhere in the world, because that ability to provide executive coaching from a distance has proven to be as effective as face-to-face. And so check out Libby Gill. If you don't know her name yet, you're going to be hearing her name more and more. And this is someone who is really dedicated to making life better for other people. Thank you, Libby, for being a part of the show today. Thank you so much. It was a real honor to be here. Well, those who are listening in, 
we um, want you to know that the leadership journey is a challenging one, but it's worth it. Investing your life into other people's lives not only makes them better, it makes your life better. It gives you depth and it gives you perspective. As leaders, it's our responsibility to set the tone. So set the tone today with your actions and choose to be the ideal version of yourself today. If anything that has come out of all the challenges we've had in, in recent years, it's that life is better when we're not doing it alone. Go make a difference today. And thank you for listening in to the Strata Leadership Show.